Happy holidays, Lynn. Happy holidays. <laughs> hello from England. I can finally say hello from the other side. <laughs> we made it. Uh, I'm so glad to hear that. I was wondering, and, and truly, anytime you sing Adele, it just makes me happy. Oh, yeah. Because I'm so good at it. It's like I'm just listening to the radio. It's like you're at her concert. Really? Live. <laughs> How's it going over there? It's good. Yeah, we just got in. We just got here. We all are in all of the Sawyers. So my husband's mom and dad. So my in-laws, my sister, my two sister-in-laws. Uh, the whole family is in a big Airbnb. We're near uh, like Newcastle, Durham, and uh, I'm going to spend Christmas here for a week. And... Then we go on to London for five days after that. How fun. Yeah. What are you going to do in London? Oh, we're going to do the Harry Potter studio. We're -hmm. going to check out, uh, we're going to the Chelsea Arsenal match. Oh, cool. Yeah, we're going to, uh, we're going to do the London Eye. We're going to do the Egyptian Museum, Winter Wonderland and Hyde Park. Oh, Awesome. Julia, I am wondering, as you're as you're describing this, I was I'm just curious, did my invitation get lost in the mail? <laughs> yeah. Yes. We were wondering why you didn't show up. Oh, Ruthie yeah. Babes was like, Where is Lenny O? <laughs> hey, I thought Lynn was coming. <laughs> you said you've you do this trip sounds like every ten years, so Right. <laughs> in ten years. You can be on the next one. Perfect. All right. Should we get on to our guests for this week? Yes. And we are for sure closing out season two on a high note with this episode. So our guest this week, our podcast guest, is the Ibtahaj Muhammad. She is a 2016 bronze medal winning fencer. At the Rio Olympics, she was not only the first Muslim-American woman to medal, but also the first American woman to wear a hijab while competing for the USA. She just completed her second book. This one is a children's book called The Proudest Blue, which is very cool. And get it for your kids because it's got a great message. She has her own Barbie doll, literally the Ibtahaj Muhammad doll. She was on Time's list of most influential people of 2016. She has her own clothesline with her sisters called Luella. She's an activist who shines light on so many important issues. And that's why it's time to get comfortable listening. It's Ibtahaj Muhammad. Kick back, relax, and unwind. Let's have a good time finding the joy in life. We're smiling so bright, talking and laughing. I did a run with her, like one ESPNW mm-hmm. summit. It was like you could pick the things you got to do. Like you could go to yoga or go running with Julie Fowdy. So I did that. I was so far behind. I saw her at the top of the hill the whole time. I was thinking, why am I doing this? And it was like a sunrise run. Oh, God. Never again. Oh, <laughs> you were fine. I remember that. No, you because we probably had to call the EMTs to come get me from like the mountain. My strategy when I run with Julie is that. I can talk 
and run with her for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then for like the last 10 to 15 minutes, I ask her to just tell stories so I don't have to try and talk and keep up with her and breathe. For your Nike half, right? That's the key. You need someone that's going to distract you the whole time. Really? Yeah. One of this, I was telling uh, one of the trainers at the gym, she did a half marathon i forget with who last year and she also hates running she's like if you need a running buddy i'll do it with you Uh that would be fun to have someone yes literally my sister and i used to train for halves back in the day when i actually would do some of them Mm. i I still do like a charity half just for fun of course but um no big deal she would like run it for real and i would be chatting with her because that's the way i didn't think about it and she'd be like you talk how do you breathe you're driving me crazy you talk too much is she older or younger she's older Older, she'd leave my ass behind she'd be like (laughs) and then i would have to go find someone else to talk to no i just like i like anything that'll get me in shape so that's why i'm like excited yeah and it gives you a little motivation to get up and get out right Mm -hmm. i don't know where i'm gonna find time to train for a half marathon but we'll see how it goes you don't need to run that Really? I mean, if you get a base of, like, you can do five pretty easily, you could do seven, yeah. right? You maybe do one a little bit longer, like eight or nine, and then you just gut it out that one day. Really? Yeah, because if you can get to eight or nine, you're fine. You're fine? Okay. And I'll tell you my secrets with half. Okay. Two Advil before you even start. Okay. Two Advil at mile four. Oh, whoa. Chili cheese dog at mile five. Are you going to be in... Am I going to be in pain? Chili cheese dog. Protein, when are you getting carbs, food in the middle? Who is giving you yeah, a chili cheese On the sideline, they have it. What? Yes, they That's have all wild. these. Yeah, you could pound one. Snack and I pounded it at mile five. More Advil at mile eight. <laughs> what? Twizzlers and oranges to finish it off. What? Give context for the chili cheese dog. <laughs> they have this little stand. In the, where is this half you're going to do? Do you know? know. I, I just LA, heard about it recently. The one in L.A., you can run the full as a half. And they mm-hmm. do it in like February, March. And at mile like four or five... They literally have these like chili cheese dog servers and they go down a line and people as they're running by, they just grab one and you pound it real quick and then you keep running. <laughs> I, can't. I just swear by it. That's so funny. Well, sounds like you've done this more than once. Yeah. Oh. I'm definitely a professional runner. Well, yes, I know. I'm a professional. I'm a professional. Okay, Em. Hmm. Should Are we, we do starting? This? I'm very excited. Let's go, sister. We're very official today. Mm-hmm. We're very official. <laughs> We're in the... Wait, I'm, I was just just about to set the scene, but you're going to set the scene, Ibtahaj. Well, how am I setting the scene? Tell me. So where we are, what it looks like. So it is a sunny 69 degrees here in Los Angeles. It's amazing outside. We are at ESPN Studios right downtown. Mm-hmm. Um really excited to be here with julie because she knows how much i love her so i'm looking forward to like a conversation oh yeah we're actually at espn radio as well in their main booth which was nice of them to give to us very nice i thought it was always this official uh we are never this official okay (laughs) lynn and i like to you know roll at the the dining table with our donuts we've done bathrooms of hotels oh whoa good sound booth (laughs) it is actually that's why exactly (laughs) it was great the last time ib that we saw each other that we got some time of substance was do you remember yes now that you're now that you're mentioning it was abu dhabi for special olympics wasn't that so cool oh i love special olympics Uh Um, but also abu dhabi i know i had never been so you, me, and Quaner, yes. Michelle Quan, 
Got to sit outside on this gorgeous back patio. At the Four Seasons. At the Four Seasons. It's very swanky. Uh, but also, it's so hot there during the day. So nighttime is when everyone emerges and you're just able to enjoy the food and the weather. Uh, but when I think about Dubai versus Abu Dhabi, I'm much more of an Abu Dhabi girl. So Are you? Yeah, I love Abu Dhabi in comparison. Because uh-huh. yeah. I only went to Dubai quickly. I spent most of my time in Abu Dhabi. It's like Vegas. Yeah. yeah like I heard like a there. combo of Vegas, uh, Dubai, Vegas... Manhattan together. Uh, I don't know. I like in the in the Gulf region. I like I prefer uh, Qatar. Like I like Doha a lot better. Yeah. You were like, saying Doha is amazing. Yeah, I love it there. Like I'm trying to go back soon. I really like it. Uh-huh. I've heard that from multiple people. Yeah, I think because they do a really good job of balancing culture, but also I don't know this kind of fast like luxurious lifestyle. Whereas Dubai to me seems to be like chasing after more of a Western lifestyle and abandoning any culture. Hmm. Yeah. That must be a constant struggle with them over there. I could feel that in Abu Dhabi. I feel like, I don't know, you're kind of lost there if you don't have a ton of money, you know? Mm-hmm. Like people are all about just spending, spending, spending. What are you driving? You know? And then how often when you're there do you ever interact with Emiratis? Never. No. You probably are interacting with like a bunch of expats, people who yeah. are from Europe yeah. or Asia who happened to move there however many years ago for work. So, yeah, there were tons of expats. Mm-hmm. It was it was super interesting. I had never been to that region before. No, I think the first Emiratis I've ever met was through Special Olympics. Really? People who volunteer for the games. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean, Emiratis? Um, people from the uh, United Arab Emirates. Yeah. So, um, Dubai and. Abu Dhabi are part of the UAE, the United Arab Emirates. And they have a ton of expats, meaning people from Europe, people from America. They all go to work there. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have a ton of locals. We call them locals. Yeah. And (laughs) the country was founded, I don't know, maybe 60 years ago or something. So it's like a very young country. Uh, And they're all about uplifting, like, their own citizens. So, like, Mm -hmm. when you get married, you get, like, a house and money and cars and stuff and, and, right you get yeah. so much it's so, crazy anyways not, yeah we digress right <laughs> okay before we start anything i have a very pertinent question for you yes because of all the list of accomplishments for you this one stood out to me the most actually <laughs> you got an academic scholarship academic yeah <laughs> to duke university i did well partial so I had to pay them some money, but yes, I got it. Academic, sister. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why didn't you look at Stanford? Funny story about Stanford. I spoke at graduation uh, this past year, so 2019. And literally while I was there, I thought to myself, why didn't I apply here? (laughs) It reminds you you a lot of Duke, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just different region, but oh man, I should have applied Right? Right? I was like, I should have went here. I kind of liked it. Yeah. Not kind of. No, I liked it. You liked it. I mean, I'm super ride or die for Duke, so I liked it, but not like that. I'm like a blue devil. How did did you find Duke? Uh, So the plan with fencing was to literally use it to go to a good university. I'm one of five kids. I'm like smack in the middle of five. And my parents are, you know, like working class. And I knew from a really young age that I wanted to go to a top university, but I felt like I needed to be creative with how I like planned to pay for it. 
So I figured, like, let me use sport, you know, to get a scholarship. Uh, so I was recruited to go to Duke. Um, I was recruited by a bunch of different schools, but Duke is the one that gave me the most money. So that's why I went to Duke. That's awesome. Yeah. How I, old were you when you thought that? Uh, 12. <laughs> so <laughs> when I d- discovered fencing for the first time at 12, I mean, I wasn't sure if it was something I wanted to try, but I looked at the top 10 schools in the country, like MIT, Stanford, Columbia, right? Duke, whatever, Harvard, Yale. They all had fencing teams. So I was like, oh, easy. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to fence. I tried to talk my friends into fencing with me. I was like, look, we can go to a good school. And they were like, no, that's dorky. We're not fencing with you. So I fenced by myself. But And tell, tell the story of how you got into fencing, because that's fascinating. Well, uh, in our family, I'm African-American. It's, I mean, just like a birthright to like play sports. Like You don't really have a choice, at least in our family. Like, you had to play sports. And in each of the sports that I played, as a kid who would eventually wear hijab. So I'm Muslim and I would eventually like cover everything, my hair, like cover everything with the exception of my face and my hands. Um, even when I was younger, I didn't wear tank tops and shorts. Like I would wear short sleeves or like capri spandex or something. But with team uniforms, I always had to add something. So if my track team had tank tops and like those little like hot shorts, whatever those are, like underwear thingies, uh, I would wear like spandex and like a short sleeve shirt or something like that. And I think just out of frustration on my mom's end, she's like tired of going to like Dick's and like Modell sporting goods stores to find extra stuff for uniforms. We were at a stoplight in our hometown, Maplewood, New Jersey, and we saw into the high school cafeteria and the fencers, Columbia High School fencers were practicing that day. And my mom and I saw these athletes who were fully covered. So the whole fencing kit, the long sleeve, the pants, the what we thought were like helmets. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, like, I don't know what that is, but I want you to try it out. And that was really like the, I think, the catalyst of why I even got involved in fencing. It was really from a religious standpoint of this uniquely accommodates, um, is uniquely accommodating to my faith. So that's why I tried it. Interesting. In terms of you were fully covered. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't realize that the uniform was an issue, like this whole struggle to kind of like fit in as a kid. I didn't realize that was an issue until I discovered fencing. Because fencing Uh was the first time in my life I really felt like I fit in with the kids around me. And I felt like I was a a real part of the team. Because like kids are brutal, right? They, I mean, even just a a really innocent question about your hijab when you're young can feel very like divisive. You know, you're like, oh man, like I have to answer this question. It's a lot of pressure, I think, to carry as a kid, a lot of weight to carry. And oh, with yeah. fencing, I felt like I don't know. I just I felt like it was a really easy transition to the sport for me, even though I was different. You because you didn't have to wear the extra layers. Everything, everyone looked the same. Well, I think also because, like, there's this obscurity when you put the mask on, Mm. you know, like, who knows who's under the mask and who cares? Like, can the person win? And I think that's what I just loved about fencing was that I could train with the guys and beat the guys, right? I could train with the girls. I could beat everyone. And no one really cared who was underneath. It was really just about, like, could you win? Go back to when you were a kid, Mm because you said grew up in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Was it a largely Muslim community or No. Not? So Maplewood, even though I would say like it's, I would describe it as a progressive, like kind of diverse town. Um, 
we were the only one of the only Muslim families. I was the only person in hijab growing up. And um, within the context of like the classroom, I was often like the only minority in my classes, especially as like I got older and moved into really like honors classes and like advanced placement classes. So I found myself not just in sport, but also in the class in the classroom, kind of this one of one. And um, I kind of got used to this idea of being othered or being different. And I think that's when I really learned to kind of come into my own, uh, where I learned that, you know, I don't need other people's approval. I don't need them to like me. Like, this is something that I think kind of built me into the person that I am today. You know, I learned really early on. how do you do on. that as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I can see that yeah. as an adult, having that maturity to think that. But as mm-hmm. a kid, you want to you wanna be liked. You want to fit in. Yeah. You, you're wearing the hijab, you said, when you're a kid. Mm-hmm. What would people say to you? Um, I think because I grew up in the same town my whole life, I don't know. I, I didn't. I didn't have, like, a trillion bad experiences. It was more like... Every now and then something would happen, like someone would call like my hijab a tablecloth or you would have like these weird like experiences, this very universal experience of being bullied, which I think we all have. But um, I would say that those awkward interactions would often come when I would as a as part of a team travel to maybe a township I'd never been to or, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to travel, I don't know, to Voorhees, New Jersey or something where it's not as progressive as Maplewood. It's not as inclusive. It's not as diverse. And so maybe that's the this opposing team. That's the first interaction with, you know, black kids or, you know, kids who wear hijab or even just dealing with referees who may may not be very open to the idea of inclusivity or diversity and and kind of express that through the calls that they make in the sport or something Mm -hmm. like that. So I felt that sport kind of gave me this lens into what it felt like to be different Um, because I I found that within within this bubble of my hometown, I could be the best student, right? I could be the best athlete and not always feel, you know, that that, – not always feel that sense of othering because – I was excelling at these things that I was good at, and uh, it felt a bit different when I would leave kind of this comfort zone, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I... As a kid. Well, I, I, I think that to, to talk about it now, it seems kind of simple, but it was hard. Like, I, I remember crying as a kid, uh, you know, being frustrated maybe with not being well-received or liked or having a bad experience. I'll never forget my mom saying, you know, like, you can't absorb the words that people say. Like, don't be a sponge. Like, you have to think of their words and think of them as water and let them run off your back. And that's something that I've carried with me, like, as an adult. I don't mm-hmm. think that it was really easy for me to just decide, like, they don't like me and that's okay, right? I I had to come into this, right? I, I It was frustration out of being made to feel like a square in circle spaces and kind of just being like, you know what? F you, F you, F you. I'm going to do my own thing because you don't like me anyway. And I think that's really what it was. It was just kind of like, this is ridiculous. Why don't you like me? Let me just do my own thing. And I really found sport to be such a haven because, I mean, I had really good teammates as a kid. Like my like Columbia High School fencing team, I think, is really what made me fall in love with the sport mm-hmm. because it was just such an inclusive space where I just really loved the people I was with. Do you remember a moment when you started fencing at your high school where you felt like, oh, I belong? Was it maybe a teammate who said said something or an experience you had? 
Um, I just know that from the time that I started, it was like a family kind of environment. So this was, I was coming into a team that historically had been, you know, the, the premier program in the state of New Jersey. So this is a state that has more fencing programs than any other state. So there's like over 100 high schools now that have fencing programs in in New Jersey. So arguably the best program in the country is where I went to school. And the legacy was there, right? So it's like you get to be a part of that just by joining the team as a freshman. And it's a lot of people. It's like 100 kids on the team between the men's and women's team. So we're like the second largest team after the football team. And I mean, imagine a fencing program that big. And it's like the only one of the only times in my life, um, with the exception of nonprofit that I fence for, one of the only times in my life where I felt like this this team loves you, whether you win or you lose. Right. It's like, what can you do to help us get there? Right. And even if you lose, like you're still a family at the end of the day. And that's what I've always loved about this program. And of course, things are always easier when you win. Like, I don't know what it looks like to lose at this program because we always won. So I'm sure it was just like, you know, this idea of of uh this camaraderie and sense of sense of belonging is a lot easier when you're winning, when it's a winning program, but I coached this team after I graduated from college for 3 years and this this team is still the same. It's like crazy how it just kind of continues. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's such a close-knit tight team where you have the most unathletic person ever who's on the team who never gets a chance to fence, but feels like this is my home, right? All the way to, like, this varsity, like, you know, well-decorated, like, three or four times state champion who also feels super tight with this kid who may not be athletic, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just this really cool sense of belonging that I think um, really was, was, I don't know, formulated in a way. Maybe it comes from coaches, maybe it comes from athletes, or maybe it's a blend of both. It's so nice to to feel you're in a safe space when mm-hmm. you find that. I, mm-hmm. I always got it with my teams and whether it was the national team or my collegiate team or, you know, even my youth team growing up, like those were spaces that I love to be mm-hmm. in because you did feel safe. But I can't even imagine I am a white privileged kid, right, <laughs> who still seeks a safe space. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine in the world we live in and the times we live in for a black woman who's Muslim in this country, you know, now as an adult, what you've had to go through Mm -hmm. and some of the situations. And can you put that into perspective? Because I think it's so important for white people like myself to understand Mm -hmm. that it's not easy, but you do it and navigate it so gracefully. Well, what's so, what's so interesting about this? So I was on a panel yesterday with Megan Rapino, mm-hmm. and I think that she articulated this so well. Right? She's like, "I'm an ally, and this is how I do it." Right? It's believing when someone tells you their story. When they share mm-hmm. a story with you, don't question it. Don't say like, "What well, did that really happen?" or "It doesn't apply to me, so I don't care." Mm-hmm. It's like you know, I believe you, and I'm going to be an ally because I believe in championing, um, even for those who may not look like me or have shared or similar experiences as I do. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's, that's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle, right? It's that lack of empathy that, that we're not seeing as much as we should right now, especially in this kind of divisive America that we live in. Uh, we see things happen 
and we see them pan out and we see people's pain from it. But do we really empathize? You know, part of the problem is that people don't believe it. They're like, well, that didn't happen. That's fake news, you know. And I don't know if I'm always super graceful, you know, with events and how they kind of unfold in front of me. Sometimes I think a form of self-care is just not even engaging because it takes too much energy, too much mental energy, too much physical energy to have to deal with, you know, the bullshit every day. Mm. Give us some examples, if you would, of some of the things. I mean, where do you start? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, microaggressions, maybe not so microaggressions can happen at any moment, at any time, right? It's can happen at the airport. I travel a lot. Somebody, you know, uh, say a gate agent, and this happens to me a lot, by the way, Mm -hmm. if we're going to board, they're asking for like 1K or like, first class and I go to board and they're like, excuse me, we're not doing economy yet. <laughs> Are you like, serious? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's wild, right? To think that people do that. It's like, I mean, to me, I just don't even say anything because, again, I don't have time. It's too much. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. you know, have to check you in that moment because you're taking away from my day, from my time, from my happiness. And I just, I can't. I can't always do that. Um, some days you have time for people, other days you don't. You know, I've had TSA agent ask me if I speak English. Oh. <laughs> Wild, right? You wouldn't think that someone would do that. Or like, so, so TSA agent just like, without asking, try to touch my head, <gasps> which is like a huge no-no. First of all, I'm a germaphobe, so you have to change your gloves, number one. <laughs> number two, you have to ask people permission. You just can't roll up on somebody and try to touch them. What's you a know? scenario where someone would just... Well, you like as someone who wears hijab, you always have like secondary screening. You just can't roll through the airport anymore. They have to like profile you, pick you out, try to touch your head. (laughs) Do they ask before they touch your head? Every now and then you'll have someone who doesn't ask. But I always make them change their gloves because I'm like, how many people have you touched with those gloves? Yeah, I can't. I'm such a germaphobe. <laughs> my change your gloves. Oh, the airport's Get those the worst. gloves off right? my head. Change your little reusable gloves. <laughs> Imagining that you encounter this on a frequent basis, and by this I mean people saying things, people mm-hmm. making comments, what have you. How many times you don't engage, just let it go and move on? Because if you engaged every time, it would be exhausting. When do you pick and choose? I think younger Iptihaj for sure would engage all the time, right? (laughs) Because I would feel like I need to speak up for all of those like older women like my mom or some auntie who wouldn't. Like my mom is the nicest person like this side of the Atlantic. She's not ever going to say anything because she's so sweet all the time. But sometimes I, I feel like, I don't know if it's because, if it's because we're women or if there are these age old narratives that exist about the Muslim community that, that people don't even think about. Yeah. They just kind of let the stereotypes and misconceptions kind of precede the interaction that they have. And they think that they can kind of boss you around or say something that's a little sideways or off color. And you're not going to say anything because of the stereotypes that exist. Right. And. I don't know, like younger me would feel like I have to say something all the time because I have to I have to let everyone know that there's a new hijabi in town and her name is Zipti Hajj, right? (laughs) But now I don't know if it's age, I'm getting wiser. I don't know. I just I don't feel like I have the energy anymore to do it, to fight the fight all the time. 
It's frustrating. It really is. Some days I have time. Most days I don't. I'm like very easygoing. Maybe it's Los Angeles. <laughs> Maybe it's the know. California vibe. Maybe it's the California vibe. Maybe I've lost my Jersey. Do you notice edge. it less or more on the West Coast versus the East? Um, More so. Here. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Because New York is so diverse. Exactly. You know, like you're dealing with people of different backgrounds, different skin colors, different religions, like Mm -hmm. um, sexual orientations all the time. Here, I feel like sometimes it's people's first interaction with a Muslim woman. I mean, how many times do you really see African-Americans here in L.A.? I know I don't see a lot because mm-hmm. when I do, I say hi. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't see that many. I don't know. It's interesting. Like, I, I've i never been so just hyper aware of my surroundings and kind of lack of people who look like me than when I've moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I would say maybe when I'm like in Moscow. But like literally like L.A. to me really? is so. Oh, yeah. L.A. So is weird. Wide. Um. I don't even know if it's just super white or if it just kind of lacks people who look like me. I'm not sure what it is, but I've noticed it here, though. There's a huge influx of women in hijab here in the summer, and they're all coming from the Gulf because it's too hot there. Right. Yeah. I was like, did they open a mosque at the Grove? Why are there so many Muslim women here? (laughs) That's funny because I I talked to some in Abu Dhabi, Emiratis, Mm -hmm. that said they come to Oh, of course. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. L.A., Boston, Mm -hmm. London, New York. Yeah, that's where they go. It gets too hot. Mm -hmm. Back to fencing. Mm -hmm. How much do you think how you grew up, some of the discrimination you had to deal with growing up, and as an adult even, impacted your fencing style? Has it impacted my fencing style? Yes. Um, I think that my... how you were as an athlete. Yeah. Well, I changed weapons. Uh, there's three weapons in fencing. Foil, epee, saber. Mm-hmm. Epee is kind of the slower, more like cerebral one. I fenced that for my first three years of high school. My team needed a saber fencer as I was leaving my junior year. And so I switched to saber. And it was just so much more fitting to my personality. It's kind of like super fast. Like the sprinters of fencing. You have to think on the fly. You have to have like a bunch of a bunch of kind of actions built up in your head. You have to know your athletes and... I just feel like it was more fitting to my like very type A personality. Mm-hmm. And I also just I, I, I would much rather sprint than to like jog. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- switch to saber. And I found that my style of fencing is so much around the idea of time. Right. I love like kind of being so on top of my opponent that they make a mistake. And like I'm able to score just in that really small window of being able to like fence more around the idea of feeling than actually it always having to be super tactical mm. and or maybe maybe uh, fencing uh, based around feeling is a tactic of mine you know I don't know but I, I know what my strong points and suits have always been in sport and it's funny because as a black athlete especially as a member of the national team because I'm the, also the first woman of color on the U.S. women's uh, national team <laughs> I saw crazy. somewhere I think your mom saying fencing Where's all white? They are all white. Oh, God, my mom. That's <laughs> why so she doesn't do interviews very often. It's like, so good. It's so true, There right? are no black people in fencing. Well, I mean, it's funny because I, um, I mean, this is a little off topic, but I started f- fencing for this nonprofit in New York City, the Peter Westbrook Foundation, 
I started fencing there because someone t- I was at a world co- or at a, a local competition as a kid, and someone a parent came up to me and she's like, "Did you know there are black people who fence in New York City?" And I was like, "Man, that's so offensive!" But I also went home and like Googled it, right? And I found this nonprofit who was started by a six-time Olympian who was on a bunch of teams with you, actually, Julie. Yeah, um, Peter Westbrook. He's mm-hmm. half Japanese, half African American, and when he retired from st- sport, he started this nonprofit. And it has about like 200 kids learning how to fence every Mm -hmm. Saturday. But it's like 200 kids of all different backgrounds. But all the instructors are mostly African-American, but um, world champions, Olympic medalists, NCAA champions, like multiple national and world teams. And that was my first experience of fencing post high school. So I didn't know that I could go to the Olympics for fencing. I never really considered it, you know. Mm. And so I think that seeing this program as a kid allowed me to unconsciously graph my aspirations in the sport and i think that's where my olympic dream really began is seeing and participating in this program as ah, a kid you were like oh okay yeah i was like they've Wait gone a second. on to do big things yeah they and they look and, like what i look like but not even that as a kid i was ever thinking about it i was still like oh i'm going to college to fence right it was really more so of this is possible for you which i don't think most i would say most minority kids are not thinking I'm going to the Olympics and fencing. We're just not thinking about that. <laughs> um, but I think that through the lens of this program, you see it as a possibility. When did the Olympics become tangible, like a reality? And you're like, oh, okay, I have the potential maybe for something. Um, I didn't qualify in 2012. My first national team was 2010. I'll never forget where Paris uh, October of two, 2010, my first my first world championships, and Olympic qualifiers started that next April in 2011. So fast forward that year, I did not make the team. I wasn't even thinking about making the team, 2012 Olympic team. And I remember seeing everybody around me just kind of like, oh man, she didn't make it. And I'm like, make what? I didn't even know I was trying to make the team. <laughs> I was just trying to increase my world ranking and get you know more experience. My first international competition, I was like 22 or 23. All of my Olympic teammates have been on cadet or junior world teams. Mm-hmm. I was the first. I'm like the only athlete who had ever made an Olympic team with their first international competition being post-college. So I've been fighting against the odds, I feel like, my entire life, right? But um, when did it become, when did the, the dream become more of a reality? I would say like op- walking and opening ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'm I, here. I'm here. Like... <laughs> Oh shit, I made it. <laughs> I really felt like I really felt like it was it was just this distant dream that I I couldn't even say out loud because if I did then it would disappear. Mm. That's how the Olympics has always felt to me. So for me I felt like the reason I even embarked on this journey after not qualifying in 2012 and and kind of deciding didn't make the team, let me put my head down and actually try to do it was a really like weird interaction I had with someone I was at a mall, I was with a friend. And this mm-hmm. little girl comes up to me and she says, uh, excuse me, are you the Olympic fencer? She's a little Muslim kid. And before I could say anything, my friend interjects and she's like, she's not an Olympian. And I was like, no, she didn't, right? <laughs> I also, in that moment, had just thought about all those times where um, I was made to feel like I didn't belong in fencing, right? Whether mm-hmm. it was because I was a kid uh, who wore hijab or because I was black or whatever it was, it just, it made me like want it in that moment more than anything. And that's when I, I think I dedicated my mind to the idea mm. for four years of hard work and heartache. 
Does this friend, this jackass oh, of a friend know We are it? not friends with her. Forget <laughs> yeah, her. One day I'm going to say her name out loud, but <laughs> nah, I don't kick it with her anymore. <laughs> Prior to really going for the Olympics, after you graduated college, it seems like you had a bit of a time of kind of figuring out what was next, which a lot of us certainly go through post-college. Can you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, man, what a rough time, right? Or at least I think society makes you feel like you, totally. like you have no idea what you're doing. Your world is unraveling at the seams. It's such like a first world problem to have. Like, I went to the world's top school and I don't know what I'm doing next. And my parents live in the suburbs and I don't have a job. It's like things could obviously be worse, right? It's a really good point. It is. It like uh, perspective, like hindsight, things could always be worse. But at the time, it was so difficult, right? Because go to this top school, all of my friends are like at Goldman Sachs or medical school, law school, have these amazing jobs. And literally, my parents were like, you cannot sit here and do nothing. Right. So I was taking LSAT classes. Um, I was studying for the LSAT. And um, that is not nothing, by the way. To my parents, nothing. You have to meet them. Um, but also, my dad got me a job at a dollar store. So I was yes, like, this you, is what I was doing, right? <laughs> I was coaching this high school team. And that's when I started fencing again, because I just couldn't sit at home and like twiddle my thumbs. I graduated in the middle of a recession. So it was like really hard for me to find a job. And um, that's when this kind of idea of even embarking on, you know, national team kind of was born because there had never been a woman of color on the team before. And I just was like, well, that's kind of wild. And I didn't have any experience other than like collegiate experience, but I was like, I'll do it, right? Only because I'm a problem solver. Uh, I just feel like I want kids to see themselves in that space. So how do we do it? We have to like, there has to be change. There has to be tangible change. And there were a lot of people around who just thought I was crazy. They were like, you, they don't see the, they don't see the potential, right? Um, For whatever reason, who knows? They don't think I'm good. They don't think maybe I'm too old at this point. But I just felt like um, it was something I could do. I know how hard I work. And um, I changed coaches when I graduated. I left this, like, misogynist a-hole and <laughs> found a new coach who, I mean, believed in me. And I felt like that was all I, I needed. I was going to say, someone saw the potential. This coach was awesome. He was, on the two, he was on the Sydney team. And he just decided to start coaching. And I was his first student in New York City. And the first day I worked with him, he was like, you can be one of the best fencers in the world. Wow. And I felt like his coach. uh, His name is Acne and Spencer Eel. Mm. And I felt like that was all I needed. I just needed someone to believe in me and willing to work hard with me. And the rest was just kind of history. Like I was always the first person at practice and the last one to leave. Like I feel like I started like my first World Cup. I was like ranked like 240th or something like that. So I like started from the very bottom of the barrel and kind of climbed my way up the ranks. And it was just a lot of really just being motivated by proving other people wrong. Like there were people around me saying, oh, she's not going to make it. She's not going to happen. And even once I made my my first national team, and I've been, I was on the national team for nine years, I was or eight years. I was on the team over and over and over again. And even the national coach would speak about me like I was a placeholder, mm-hmm. right? Like there was some other girl who was going to make the team next year or some other person. And to him, it was like, it wasn't going to be me. And so I think that just having all these people around who doubted me made me more myopic in my focus and more kind of driven. And I hate haters. Like, I hate it, right? And I feel like, how cool would it be if we didn't have them? 
but also like <laughs> wouldn't life be so much wouldn't better? life be so much better? <laughs> but also, I I think that for me, I realize that not everybody's going to have that same drive that I had. Nor should you have to. It's like, but what's what's interesting to me is in that situation, there's very divergent paths that could happen there, right? You hear all the time of people being beaten down or the haters are hating and they internalize it and they never make it to the top because yeah. they just continue to knock them down and mm-hmm. they can't get through it. Mm-hmm. And it's not like for you, it became an internal visceral driving force. But right. for so many, that's not the case. How did you flip it to something that was okay, I'm going to take this negative energy and turn it into positive energy that makes me even better. I, You know, honestly, I don't know. Like, sometimes I think it's because with Olympians, it's like a fine line. We're like Olympian or we're crazy. Like, who knows where the line is? Like, That's maybe so we're just true. both, right? I feel like, who <laughs> would do this? Like, why? Crazy. We're crazy. Like, who in the world would literally do this nobody because we're crazy so living one side crazy yeah and it's like so blurred i honestly feel like you have to be so insane to dedicate your life to this extent right to to make it Mm -hmm. and think of how many people never make it that's why i truly believe in like faith right and i think that having such a strong spiritual base and relying so much on my faith kind of guided me through this process because Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so many times where it would have been easier to just kind of walk away and do something else because I felt like there were always these things pushing back against my existence in the sport. But um, just believing in, like, God's plan for me kind of guided me through the process. Like, I have crazy stories that I write about in my book, Proud, but um, crazy things that happened to me during Olympic qualifiers where I felt like there were literally people and things that were happening that were just meant to, like, they they were hoping that I would not qualify if they treated me this way. Mm-hmm. They're like, if we treat her, if mm-hmm. we continue to treat her like this, there's mm-hmm. no way that she'll ever win a medal. There's no way she'll make it into the next round. Like, we'll try to do things to, like, kind of thwart her dream of making the mm-hmm. Olympic team. And I just feel like it was always God's plan for me to make it. Like, it's almost like you just have to be so myopic. And like I said, you got to be crazy. Do you ever wonder what it would have been like to not be where you are? Like an injury could have kept you from ever becoming mm-hmm. like the Julie Foudy, right? It could have been anything. <laughs> <The Julie Foudy. laughs> I mean, it's crazy to think like, I mean, I, yeah. I literally tore, um, I like had this really bad fall during Olympic qualifications where I thought I broke my foot. I remember my face hitting the ground when I fell I was fencing at a uh, training camp in Paris. I remember my face hitting the ground and screaming and thinking that my that was it, right? And it's like just I think small things like that could totally change yeah. the direction of your journey. I know athletes that failed a drug test and didn't go to the Olympics, yeah. who like broke their foot, didn't go to the Olympics. Oh yeah, you right know? before, right before the yeah. games, How after they qualified, I mean, she obviously went on to. To have a beautiful career, but Mm -hmm. broke her leg the game they were heading out to the Olympics in 2008. Yeah. I mean, just something small like that, you know, and I don't Mm -hmm. know. I always think, like, what would have happened? What would have happened if I didn't make the Olympic team? You Mm -hmm. know, like, where would I be? What would I be doing? Would I be happy? You know, I have teammates who didn't qualify for the Olympics who still have not qualified. And I I genuinely believe that they're still sad. They're still depressed. I was thinking, actually, as you were talking about what if you hadn't seen those fencers that day driving through. Right. And maybe because your town 
in your high school was so fencing uh, savvy, I guess, or mm-hmm. it was so prevalent that you would have been introduced to the sport. But mm-hmm. I always think that, you know, we talk about this a lot on the podcast because you talk to so many women about these. We were talking to Doris Burke recently about her divine providence, she calls mm-hmm. it, and all these little paths in her life where she could have gone this way and she went this way and she could have right. gone this way. And all these little things that could have changed. Or like my, my parents were looking to buy a house. Like why they buy it in Maplewood? Like my mm-hmm. dad... Uh, a narcotics detective what if he took the job that was in atlanta there's no Mm. fencing in atlanta Mm -hmm. not at the same scale as this like tri-state epicenter of fencing that exists in like new york new jersey connecticut but what if my dad had taken a job in atlanta you know like what would i be doing Mm -hmm. would i be a a doctor like i thought would i be a lawyer i don't know now were your parents muslim um like did they convert to muslim or did yeah they they converted to to islam Islam? in the 70s yeah Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm So they converted to Islam in the 70s. Yep. And so you always grew up, though, with a Muslim family. Yeah. My parents converted separately in the 70s. And um, they met each other, got married, had kids. And, like, we were all born into the faith. So we're, I guess, first-generation Muslims. Um, And now that my siblings all have kids, their kids are, like, second-generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing... We were saying we need, like, Muslim 101 for white ladies who want to learn, right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. We really want Muslim 101. Okay. First of all, I want to make a PSA about this. There is no Z in Muslim or Islam. It's S. Yes. Muslim. Muslim. Islam. Muslim. Yeah. Islam. Yeah. Yeah. And you say... Oh, my God. I feel like I just changed lives right now. I do. You do. Thank you. And what is the significance of the hijab to the Muslim face? So, um, hijab in Arabic literally means to cover. It's not specific to men or women, like the term itself. Mm, Like men also have like this kind of follow this idea of modesty within the faith too. Like they don't expose, what is it? Uh, I forget. Maybe like their belly button to their knees or something like that. I don't Mm -hmm. know. There's certain things like within the faith where, um, like men also kind of have to adhere to this idea of modesty as well. Uh, but and not all Muslim women wear hijab. Like some do, some don't. Yeah. Some believe that women have to, some believe women don't. Um, I observe hijab in a way to kind of stay connected to my faith. Um, and so I, I wear hijab when I leave my house. When I get home, I take my scarf off. Hmm. But um, I don't show my hair to like men, basically. Like if you're in my home, if we did our podcast in my home, I would be without hijab. Oh, oh you would? No yeah. kidding. Mm-hmm. And for women who do or do not, there's no judgment on that? I mean, different jokes for different folks. I think uh, you may, I don't know, find the same within any faith where you have people who are like more conservative and people who are more, more liberal. Um, I don't know if, I don't know exactly how to answer that question. I personally try not to pass judgment on people. Right. Yeah. Because even in Abu Dhabi, you saw some women that who wore it, yeah, yeah, and some women wore hijab, and mm-hmm. some who did not, which yeah. I thought was interesting. If you're ever on a flight from the Gulf, next time you fly, like anywhere, Dubai, Qatar, wherever, notice how many people board the plane in hijab, and when you land, we'll take it off. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's a cultural thing, more so of a religious thing. I know Nike's been very proactive in making athletic wear with the hijab built into it, and I saw you just posted something about it recently with the runner in Ohio who yeah. was forced to 
Um, I think she was, was disqualified. Noor. She was disqualified because she was yeah. running in hijab. Mm-hmm. And I'm a like, high school runner. Yeah, a high school runner. I'm thinking cross country. We're still dealing with this. Well, the backstory to what happened to her happens around the country. That's one thing that I want people to know is that I don't think that that story is unique to her, right? When and, and and this is the crazy part is that we haven't progressed since even when I was in high school. When I was in high school, you needed a letter from a religious authority. So for Muslims, it would be an imam. The imam would say that you're wearing the headwear for religious reasons. In the state of New Jersey, you give that letter to your athletic director, who then submits it to the Board of Education. Oh they gosh. get a stamp of approval on it. Wow. And the, the athletic director then gives this stamp letter to your coach. And your coach has to have it on them. In the event that a referee or coach, a parent, somebody asks, can she wear that? then the coach has to present it to the official. To me, the, here's the problem. One, it shouldn't be, it should, that rule should not exist. That's like number one. Well, and there's like 17 layers to it. Right. So, but then also I think, and this is what I believe happened with the case of Noor Abdul Qadir in Ohio, is that you had somebody who last minute decides they want to see it because they sit in the seat of privilege where they feel like, it is my prerogative to know whether or not this is legal for her to wear in this in this you know track meet, and they asked to see it. Her coach didn't have it. So what happens next? The mm. referee disqualifies her. It's crazy, and this is where these kind of like loopholes like provide entrance for bigots and racists. And this happened to me when I was a kid. This happened to me when I was coaching my sister on the high school level. You would have coaches who would wait till. 8.59, the competition starts at 9 a.m. to say, yeah. oh, oh, no, 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 I need to see your letter to say, you know, that you can wear hijab. And imagine my poor sister is like, you know, 15, 16 years old, fencing this big state competition, and she doesn't know if she's going to be allowed to compete because she didn't have the letter submitted, you know, before the start of the competition. Wait, to your point, why, why is this rule still I, around? That I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's because, I don't know, they say it's for safety. They don't want to make sure that People aren't, you know, trying to wear beanies and I don't know. It's crazy. When It's crazy because it affects people who, you know, may want to wear their yarmulke or may want to wear their hijab, you know, like it affects people who are actually or their turban if they're Sikh, people who are actually wearing something mm-hmm. on their head for religi- mm-hmm. religious reasons. I think it disproportionately affects those athletes. Mm. When are you going to run up for office? <laughs> you always say that. I don't I know. I always say that. I'm not filtered enough I to s- run for office because <laughs> I'll like curse somebody out. The jersey will come out. I don't think I'm I'm filtered enough. It's not what's me. What's an approach to have a constructive conversation about this? Because I'll be honest, I don't have any friends who wear a job. I don't have an opportunity necessarily to talk about it. So how should people learn about this? Mm-hmm. What would be your advice? Specifically about what happened to Noor in Ohio? No, I think just gaining an understanding about differences mm-hmm. and starting a conversation about it. For me, for instance, I would really like to, to learn about it. What's in a way in which people approach you where you say, yeah, let's have a conversation about this? What's a respectful way, perhaps? Um, that's a good question. You know, I there are things that I don't know about that I don't necessarily feel inclined to like go up to a stranger and ask about. Um, but I understand where you're coming from. But I feel really strongly in that 
sometimes those conversations should not always have to fall on the back of like the oppressed group, right? Because it can be taxing, like to have to con, like, I don't want to constantly talk about hijab. I'm sorry, but I don't really want to do that every day. Sure. Right. Like, I understand that people want to be understanding and have these kind of meaningful mm-hmm. conversations. It's like, oh, do I want to do it every day? Nah, probably not. Mm-hmm. But um, what I love is that the there's curiosity as opposed to it being the other side of the coin where it's just like oh it's so different that i can't you know like i don't mm-hmm. want to be bothered and mm-hmm. I, I think that it's wrong i think that it's oppressive and uh i when it comes to what muslim women choose to wear especially for me living here in los angeles i see a lot of women cover their hair um i see a lot of women dress modestly like when I think of the really large Hasidic population that exists here in Los mm-hmm. Angeles, when I think of women who may, just may wear wigs because that's their thing, that's where we are in fashion right now. It's like, why is it that, you know, we are comfortable with everyone else, but we're uncomfortable with some women who choose to cover? Mm-hmm. That yeah, has always baffled me. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. That I don't understand. Total, yeah. And also, when did we, as a society, get to a point where we feel like it's okay to police women's bodies but only specific like specifically for this group Mm -hmm. you know like i think it shouldn't matter if i want to walk down the street in a bikini if i want to walk down the street in a burkini those are that's like my prerogative right i don't think that it should really come into question i don't think it's for someone else to decide whether it's okay or not Mm -hmm. and um before i went to the world cup this this summer and France is banning, you know, hijab in public school and hijab in like, um, like state spaces. I, I mean, I like drew a line in the sand. I like tweeted at France. I was like, I'm wearing my hijab every damn day because y'all are ridiculous. <laughs> and it was just, I don't know. I, I don't like the, the idea of feisty pol- Well, I just don't like the idea of people trying to tell others what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I truly believe in the freedom of religion, and if I want to cover, I feel like it's my business. Mm-hmm. And and I, I mean, to your question, Lynn. Sometimes it's just getting to know a person. I feel yeah. like just talking to people. Like instead of being afraid of people, like go up and say hi. And and it doesn't have to be about you know where you're from, what your culture is, but just getting to know people opens up a world that you don't even know about. Yeah, I think sometimes and, even me just like smiling and something like, oh my gosh, this Muslim woman just like, <laughs> is this happening? I feel like that's my act of charity for the day. Like, I'm just going to go around smiling. Right? Like, and, and yeah. you know, it's interesting because like that's that's something that's a part of my faith, right? Like to to be kind. Mm-hmm. And I feel like when you ask about the idea of hijab, like why I wear hijab, for me, it's a rem- it's a reminder to like be a good person. It, mm. it reminds me of my faith or I don't know. It just reminds me every single day to try to lead my day with like kindness and love and happiness as opposed to like all the crap that we see. Yeah. And I, and I don't know. I'm such a big fan of if you just like we're so much more alike than we are different. Right. Mm-hmm. And agreed. It, you just have to break those walls and barriers down and just get to know each other and chat. You were asking about like specific situations that have happened. And I was like, I don't know. They happen all the time. I was here in LA, you know, I have a clothing company mm-hmm. and I was here in LA and I was shopping in the fabric district and I was in a, in a, in a fabric store and a guy was like, excuse me, like you have to leave. And I was like, Oh, are you closing? And he said, <laughs> he said, no, like your money's no good here. Like you're not welcome here. You have to leave. Wow. And I was like, like I think my like voice left my body. I didn't even know what to say. 
I'd never had that happen to me in my life. You know, when been like that? turned away. Recently. Probably like when I, a little after I moved here, so like two years ago. Wow. Yeah. And did you respond to him? I mean, what am I going to do? He told me to leave his store. So right. I like, I left. Yeah. <sighs> like, what do you do? I don't know. <sighs> Bizarre. You're like, I'm an American? Just as American as you are? I mean, to be, I could be from Mars. Like, who right. does that? Right. Who tells you, like, you know, like, you have to leave? And I, it was because I had on hijab. It's like your money's no good here. It's odd. I know the hate that exists. Yeah. For it's no reason at all. Shocking sometimes right. because you don't expect it. I watched a video online yesterday that came up on my Instagram feed of this guy just walking up to a woman. This is in Australia. It's a pregnant Muslim woman in hijab. He walks up to her and her friend. She's sitting at a cafe and he starts like punching the crap out of her. Mm. And it's like, oh man, it makes you think like, is that something like that going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. Like I was raised wow. by a drug detective, so I'm like always really aware of what's going on around mm-hmm. me, who's around me. But not everybody's like that. You shouldn't have to be like that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like these are the times that we live in, especially like with the shootings and everything that mm-hmm. happened. It just makes you a bit I more like, that. I don't know, heightened senses of what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Of course. Okay. Uh, two things I want to get to before we let you go. Your children's book, mm-hmm. The Proudest Blue, which is about bullying and some of the things we're talking about, tolerance and accepting people for their differences. Mm-hmm. Tell people about that because we need more of these in our young kids' hands, right? Instead of the books where I'm like, duck! <laughs> Another book that, you know, a woman gets saved by a man. Right. <laughs> I told Disney that. I was like, no more of these books. <laughs> right. I, uh, I knew when I got my book my book deal for my memoir that at some point I want to go into children's literature because I know what it's like to not see yourself represented like in picture books. Mm. My parents made great efforts to bias books about like African-American historical figures, whether that be like Jackie Robinson or Althea Gibson or Mm. Muhammad Ali, like whatever. Those were the books that we read because they wanted to make sure that we saw ourselves represented. Right. Right. Um, not everybody has, you know, my parents. <laughs> so I, I, I would love, and I, I talked to my book agent about this. I'm like, I would love to, to see a picture book that, um, the main character wears hijab, right? So that's kind of where the idea of the proudest blue was born. And it, it follows my two younger sisters, Faiza, um, and my sister Asiya, her first day of wearing hijab to school. What I love about b- books is that, you know, is a lens and also, or a window and also a mirror, right? So Mm -hmm. there's this, if you are Muslim, there's this kind of mirrored idea of us telling the story of hijab and the first day of wearing hijab from the inside of our community, where it's like this celebrated idea and you see it from the perspective of this kid and so pure. And she's like, my sister gets to wear, you know, her crown to school today and I can't wait to wear hijab to school. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you also... It's a window into the community where it's not, you know, objectified and made to demonize and made to be this god awful thing, which I feel like is has been the force fed narrative for us for a long time. Um, but it also tells this kind of universal experience of bullying, uh, where, I mean, it's a really really beautiful book. I mean, like, I know it's my book, but it I did not illustrate it. Yeah, who's um, the Hatem yeah. Ali. He's a Canadian guy, and he did such a beautiful job. Yeah, it's really, it's really cool. Oh, I love it. But um, the the bully, right, who says this awful thing to Asiya of like, take the tablecloth off of your head. 
um, the bully is so like nondescript. He's kind of this blurry, shadowy figure, and you don't know what he looks like. I'm hoping that kids one see that that bully can be anyone, mm-hmm. right? It could even be you. Like we've all been there where we've said the wrong thing, and maybe our words were received the wrong way. Um, but I think that the main theme in, to the book is that Asia does not absorb the bully's words. You know, like her mom says, like those words are not yours to keep. Drop them. And um, I just think it's a beautiful story of of family and inclusivity and how how do we learn to celebrate one another for our differences. Mm-hmm. And it's a story that I feel like, I don't know, anybody can read to their kid because it, it, like I said, it's either, you know, a lens into a group that may be different from you or maybe it's your kid who does wear hijab. It's their first, you know, opportunity to see themselves in a picture book. Those words are not yours to keep. Mm-hmm. That's your mom. That's my mom. What she used to say to you. Well, mama bear. Love her. I want to meet mom and dad. You have to. Well, I feel like I'm surprised you didn't meet them at the Olympics. Mm. My dad was probably looking for you. <laughs> Speaking of the Olympics, before you go to what you want to do, can mm-hmm. I circle back and ask yeah. you about what your experience was like? Julie was actually talking about how she got a chance oh. to see fencing live. Yes. That, that was my first. I think I told you this, Ib, but my yeah. first time seeing fencing live. Was in Rio? Yeah, because I was so obsessed with like well, What event did you see? You know, I was covering <laughs> yeah. it. I was like, uh, let's go, Ib! <laughs> well, all I remember is your your event. Mm-hmm. Did you Were you there for team event? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And I was telling Lynn... It's the craziest thing I've ever seen when you see it live. Yeah. Because all the lighting, and it's so dramatic, and mm-hmm. the race stage. stage. Yeah. And I felt like it was a video game. It was right. so weird, like with the noises and the lights flashing. And right. It was crazy. Right. And like the grunting and the yeah. shouting. Mm-hmm. I loved it. I mean, I think that it's it's one of those sports that... You're just waiting one day for everybody to jump on board and be like, oh, this is marketable. Like, this is fun to watch. It's It's a lot of fun. It's crazy. Um, But yeah, I mean, Olympics was just insanity because we have you can go to a World Cup and the only people who are in the stands are the other athletes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe some like athletic trainers, some coaches, maybe someone's parent came. But like for the most part, we don't really have a ton of spectators. So the Olympics was just wild. Yeah. I, I don't think that we've had that many spectators since probably w- whenever you go to world championships. But it was so fun to watch. It's insanity. So enough about me, right? What, what? <laughs> I mean, How I'd only ever been. I, that was my first Olympics. I feel like it's it's one of those things that I'll always hold close to my heart. It's the greatest gift I've ever had is representing us at the Olympic Games because I know how coveted that is. Right? There's so many people who try and don't get there even fewer who win a medal. So I just feel like so thankful. And I'm like, God, I worked so hard for that. Mm. (laughs) I like needed it to happen. Because it's like, I mean, so much heartache when you think about the injuries and the tears and Mm. the hours in the gym, all the weddings that you missed or baby showers or events. Yeah, you miss so much stuff just because you're crazy, right? And you (laughs) You miss so many things, so many moments in your life because you, you're holding on to this dream, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a favorite moment from the Olympic Games? Um, definitely after I won my medal and, like, there's this picture of me just, like, I'm hysterical. My brother's crying. My brother-in-law, sister, nephew, parents were all, like, embracing my best friend. There's, like, literally a picture of, like, ten of us, like, embracing. Because, like, af- right after we won, I went straight to my family in the stands. Aww. Yeah, I love them. 
That's so fun. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've like checked every box. Olympics, check. Barbie doll, check. check. Got my own. <laughs> Barbie's my real claim to fame. <laughs> Books, check. <laughs> Clothing line, check. <laughs> What's next? What's what next? else are you going to check? I don't know. I mean, I know I'm not going to the next Olympics, right? Not mm-hmm. as not as an athlete because I've officially retired. Hoping to commentate. I would love that. Oh, yay. Um, Come to the dark side. Right? <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like there's always a ton of things that are right. I don't know. Different opportunities. I signed another two book deals. I have two children's what? books. Yeah. Oh, fab. Um, I would love to expand my brand. Uh your clothing brand? My clothing line, Luella. Luella. Yeah, I would love to expand Luella. That's why I moved out here. Um, I don't know. I always Except feel for like... when you're in the garment district and you get kicked out of shops. That's... <laughs> that happened one time. One time. <laughs> Jerk. Jerk. Uh, I always, I'm always really interested to see like what, what, what's, what's next in the cards, you know? And I just try to really be appreciative of, of the platform, the newfound platform of, of being an athlete and being in the spotlight because you can, either use your moment to be an agent of change or you could be super self-absorbed and only think about you know yourself all the time and I'm all about leaving the world a better place so I don't know if that means you know working with more nonprofits or starting my own nonprofit or um, really just trying to be impactful within my family or within my communities I feel like that's always what drives me mm, I love it all right Lynn time for a game Every episode, we have a game in which Julie goes head-to-head with our guest. Excited. You don't want it. You don't want the smoke, Fowdy. <laughs> Bring it, sister. Oh, my gosh. Every it's actually time. a game. Oh, yeah. There's one rule to the game. Mm-hmm. You have to squeak in with an answer, and you get to pick your squeaker. Okay. You have three options today. I really feel for this season, I maybe have one win. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. It is. One win ever. Ever. <laughs> Who did you beat? <laughs> Who was it? Miss Val and Caitlin Ohashi. Oh, that's uh, right. And I crushed them. Ah, uh, UCLA. Yes. <laughs> Down with the Bruins. Abe, <laughs> you can either have the Robin Roberts boar, the Billie Jean King elephant, or the OG blue dog. I'm going to Billie Jean King it with the All little right. cute... That's a smart oh, so choice. Cute. Julie gets the boar. Finally. I never get the boar. Man, I don't really like pigs. It's like, I don't know. I couldn't do pork. No no pork on my fork. I'm Muslim. Right. <laughs> Can't do the pork. No boars. It was a trivia game. And the theme yes. today is the Olympian challenge. Ooh, scandal. It's actually inspired, I had seen on your Instagram post that you wrote where there's a fine line between Olympian and crazy mm-hmm. and knowing Julie pretty well, that I sounded about right. Very sane. Yeah, right. <laughs> very normal. Uh, I call BS. <laughs> my kids are always like, Mom, you're crazy. It wants to be normal. Here's question one. Uh, so I squeak in. Squeak in, yes. Okay. And then answer. Yes, exactly. Okay. I'm just kidding. I'll wait. The rule is, if you squeak... You don't have an answer. She stops reading it. And oh. Answer. Reading okay. the question. So okay. Do not be... Squeak wisely. Yes. Okay. Do not pre-squeak. I'm not pre-squeaking. Question one. How many rings are in the Olympic... 
Oh, that's all you get. Five. Correct. What? Yes! Oh, baby, what's it? I don't know where oh, this was oh, going. Oh, 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 is this just like a best out of? Is it just best one out question? of five? five? Best out of five. Oh, whatever. She's Good obviously luck. played this before. one. Zero. Oh I have God. complete faith in you. Ugh, now complete. I feel so competitive. I'm going to win. Okay. Here it comes. This is my second win. I feel it in. You're going so, down, sister. This is I'm a, nervous. This is a multiple choice question. Okay. So you have to wait till the end. Or you could just go with C. Or I just know it. <laughs> what are the two official languages of the Olympics? English and German, English and the host country language, or English and French? B. Incorrect. <gasps> English and French! Two! Two zero! Ow! France. Damn! Whatever. Yes! Did you make that um, up? I'm just saying, Ib, no pressure, <laughs> but I beat Miss Val and Caitlin by three to zero. Oh, the game Lord. Was over. Oh, You're Lord. staring at it right now, oh, sister. Man. Good luck. You got this. Good you got this. this. I'm not Good. nervous. I've been down before. And you know, I don't like slow down for you to go. <laughs> Okay, go. Question three. <laughs> Who became the first African-American woman to win an individual gold medal in swimming? Oh, come on. Ib- Simone Manuel. Correct. Oh, you, you weren't so going to get that. I knew that. that. I knew that. We I, you were going to revoke my black card on, on air if I didn't, if I didn't <laughs> get that one. I know. I was going to kick you off the island. Okay. This is another multiple choice if you need it. If you know the answer... You, can you wanted in. to keep it interesting. You knew that one, but you let me squeak yeah, in. Yeah, I just was whatever. feeling sympathy for you. Well, whatever. Number four. Wait, is this multiple choice? It's multiple choice. If you know the answer, though, you can feel free you to squeak in. Oh, okay. Michael Phelps has the most medals of any Olympian with 28. How many of those are gold? Oh. Is it 23, 19, or 27? <laughs> 23. Correct. Oh, that's what I yeah! I'm ready. I'm ready. I let her back in. Okay, it's down to the Now you didn't know. She was is that sweat on your brow? (laughs) You don't know. (laughs) She's talking trash. I love it. This is here it is. This is for all the marbles. marbles. It is. Not multiple choice. Don't let me down, Billie Jean King elephant. (laughs) Come on, Robin Roberts boy. (laughs) I'm in. I'm locked in. Look at I've got like eye contact. What country has the most medals in Summer Olympic history? What country has the most medals? I'm not even going to wait. Because if it's not the United States of America, I don't care. It's the United States of America. (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know what I was waiting for. I was waiting for, like, the multiple choice. Yeah. Yeah. Swing and a miss. I shouldn't have. uh, You're right. I feel... I feel bad that I feel. I was waiting for more. I know. I feel bad. I'm so sad. (laughs) Billie Jean King, you let me down. You let me down. Second win. Most pressing questions, Ibtahaj. Yes, ma'am. What is a shoofy? A (laughs) shoofy. That's you're a Nike athlete, and you get a ton of free stuff, so you take (laughs) pictures of your shoes. So a selfie of your shoes? A selfie of your shoes. Did I make that up? Maybe. You think so? I think so. Okay. I'll take it. Hashtag Shufi. Hashtag Ipti Hash made this up, Shufi. <laughs> we do like your Shufis. Oh, thanks. You're I haven't done that in a while. 
No? I should. What are you rocking today? Um, cute pair of Air Force Ones. Mm. You see them? Mm-hmm. I have, I, I have like seven Air Cortezes I love. Oh, do you love them? Yes. Mm. I'm a Cortez woman. I'm yeah. an Air Force One woman. Oh, you are? Oh, yeah. If That's I don't it. have on heels, I wear Air Force Ones. Izzy wears those all the time, too. Love them. My daughter. What's it like having a billboard in Times Square where it says, be the hero you didn't have? Ah, uh, that's so cool, right? I love Nike oh for that. Oh my gosh. Oh, love. Why the question mark at the end, right? Um. <laughs> oh my God, check that off the bucket too. I know, Boom. love. Um, I mean, I, I feel like coming from a smaller sport, even having the opportunity to work with Nike, it's like a dream come true, right? Billboard or no billboard, I just feel like it's an opportunity for people in smaller sports or athletes in smaller sports or even little kids who look like me to see themselves in the space of, of sport, maybe um, especially those low profile ones that people don't even think to put their kids in. So, man, I love it. That's a pinch me moment in my life. Billboards. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> or squeak me moment. Or squeaking moment. Yes. <laughs> All right. I also see on Instagram. Yes. You like to ride motorized scooters. Oh, yeah. The big question is. Do you want to be part of my scooter gang? Or when are we scooter ganging? I am obsessed with the scooter. Yeah, but you live on the beach. That's why you scooter all the time, well, right? I scootered all through France this summer. Oh, they did, did you? not even like get in a taxi. Oh, wow. No, that makes sense. Because it was just, just, it was so much traffic. Yeah. You just scooter everywhere. Um, I love, I feel like I bird downtown for sure, downtown LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, also when I go to like Venice or Santa Monica or something. But yeah. we don't have them on the East Coast. No. Probably for liability reasons in New York. Right. They're not going to... Can you yeah. imagine scooters in New York City? Oh, that my God. Be ugly. There would just be a lot of, like, 911 calls. <laughs> yeah. I think it was that way in France as well. Um, okay. Then our last segment we do is high-low cheer. Uh, and it's the <clears throat> something we do around the dinner table with my kids. They're high of the day, low of the day. Mm-hmm. And the cheer is someone they cheer for that they're grateful for or mm-hmm. something they're grateful for. But for you, it's of your career. Mm-hmm. So high of your career, low of your career, and some high of my career. Um, Olympics, like that's my high. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those things that like you wake up and you're like, wait, wait a second, that actually <laughs> happened. Or like Olympic medal, I would say. Um, low of my career, um, I would say just generally uh, dealing with like really difficult national team members. Mm. Um, it wasn't something I expected when I first made my first national team, but I, I don't think I realized how contentious of a space an individual sport first of a national mm-hmm. team would be. Mm-hmm. And it was just really hard. It took a long time for me to kind of understand where where kind of the, the energy stemmed from and also how to, how to navigate it. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, once I learned to navigate it is when I, I really just became like a more successful athlete because I realized I was like, yeah, whatever, I just kind of do my own thing, right? And and uh, think of it as an individual sport first. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. It was tough. Yeah. And cheer? Cheer? What do you mean? Someone you cheer for. Who do I cheer for? Yeah. Or something you're grateful for. Someone who maybe has helped you in your career. I mean, I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, I would say my sister, uh, my younger sister, Faiza, she's six years younger. Uh, she also um, was in contention to make the Olympic team. And 
I feel like I wouldn't have been able to make it, you know, whether it be like win a medal at a competition or kind of climb the ranks within the sport without having her support all the time. Mm. It would have been harder to like travel to China or Russia or Tunisia or wherever we were going all the time and be on the road because we travel like 12 to 15 different countries a year, sometimes like two or three weeks on the road. Imagine doing that, but being made to feel like an outsider and have having to do it all by yourself all the so time. she was with you for all those trips. You got Not be all, but we were together for a lot. That's and I nice. also have um, one of my best friends, Fence, is from Mexico. Uh, so I feel like I was really lucky to have these people I could lean on. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it would have been a lot harder. And I think I'm not sure I would, you know, yeah. have made it or lasted as long without these people in my life. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you, my dear. Yes, thank you for having me. I mean, every time you post about it, I'd be like, FOMO, I want to go on. <laughs> We've had you on the guest list from the very beginning, so well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Anything for Pouty. Yeah. I love you, darling. Love you, too. Thanks for shining light on so many great issues that need to be discussed and for showing people to the possibility of tolerance and living in a world that's kinder. And all that's out there. I mean, I think, what did we decide? It's like, get to know someone who doesn't look like you. Boom. That's all you got to do. And the world would be better. The world would be better. Go do that, people. Yeah, get outside your comfort zone. Right. Here's what I can't wait for, Lynn. I can't wait to see what Ibtahaj takes on in her next adventure. Because whatever she does... I want to get on that bandwagon. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, let's actually start with your takeaway. What what was your takeaway? And I'll give you mine. Sure. I appreciate Ipti Hajj talking about her faith. On that note, I loved how she said that for her, wearing hijab is about kindness, Mm -hmm. love, and happiness. Mm -hmm. And truly, after that interview... I personally had a new understanding and perspective that I've carried with me since then. Right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. that and that's why I know we've talked for so long about having her on is because when you do talk to her, it completely opens your world. And that's always my takeaway every time I sit down with her at anything is you know, that tolerance costs nothing, really, to be tolerant and accepting. And that and especially right now when we're um around a lot of family and friends and the holidays mm-hmm. like spend mm-hmm. time to to mend a fight or revive a relationship that's been fractured or just smile at people i mean her right her her comment of that's a reminder her hijab to spread kindness and and yeah. and really you can do it and you you you're asking for nothing in return it costs nothing so and I've come to believe that life is completely about relationships. And so the more relationships mm-hmm. we have in life with people who look differently than us and talk differently than us and maybe live somewhere differently than us, then the world opens up and it's a better place. So that's why I'm so happy mm-hmm. for people to hear her message. There's a thought that I've actually been focusing on myself in the last month or so, which is the idea of choosing kindness over being right. I think when, for me, sometimes when I get with my family, I mm-hmm. tend toward wanting to be right, mm-hmm. and I'm working on just choosing kindness in that moment. Yeah. 
All right, questions permitted, Lynn. Jules, before we get there, you're not going to believe this. I have a clarification on last episode's clarifications. <laughs> a clarification of the clarification. <laughs> Bring it. We don't want to leave any loose ends on season two. So here we go. If you remember, we talked about Crocs in the close of the Stewie episode. Oh, goodness. It's back to Crocs. It's back this to is, Crocs. This is going to affect my asterisk, isn't it? In the game. I could have won it. You're going to say I could have won it. Well, it was all based off of a question from the game we played with Stewie. The question was, what was the name of the colorful plastic sandals that became popular during the 2000s? You, of course, said Crocs. Stewie said that is a Croc because those aren't made of plastic. (laughs) As the host of the game, I didn't want, I obviously don't want to be asking inaccurate questions. So I looked it up and thought I clarified the matter by saying that Crocs are indeed not made of plastic. They're made of cross light. So here's where things get interesting, Julie. A member of our dope village sent us a message on Twitter saying this. Mm. (laughs) Yep. I know you might get a little fired up after hearing this. According to Kate B of our dope village, she said that cross light is made up of an EVA foam. EVA, as everyone knows, stands for ethylene vinyl acetate. Of course it does. It's also made up of polyolefin. Of course it is. Both of which are considered... Plastic. Plastic. Hmm. So I win. Maybe. It's The count ended up being three to two. However... There definitely would have been more drama had it been two to two going into the final question, though I do remember that Stewie answered the final question before I even finished it. I think it affected my confidence. I really do. It affected my confidence. I really was second-guessing myself as well. Yeah. I feel like it's just a lesson learned. I'm not exactly sure what the lesson is, (laughs) but we'll find something to take away from it. Questions permitted, Lynn. Thank you for the clarification on the clarification. You're welcome. Julie, this is a question from me. What was your favorite moment of season two? Mm. That's a hard one. Gosh, we've had so many good guests. Um, I would say I'm going to go back to our very first episode of season two with the Kinger, Billy Jean Mm -hmm. King, because I cannot tell you how many people have come up to me and said, Billy Jean King's line of... Not settling for the crumbs. As women, we shouldn't settle for the crumbs and to walk into a negotiation and know you deserve it all and to ask Mm. for more. I've had friends come up to me and say, I was in the middle of negotiating a huge contract when I listened to that podcast and I walked out of there and I stood my ground and I got what I deserve because of Mm. that. And, you know, moments like that where there's a tangible result to the wisdom of the kinger, which... We all know, but when you hear so many people reflect on that, um, it just, it warms my heart that, that she had such a great impact on them, hopefully, or their next episode of them going into something similar where they're going to have the courage to, to step up and, and speak up. The Kinger, the wise the one. Kinger. <laughs> what was your favorite moment? For me, it's hard to top the moment when I got to read Robin Roberts, the email she had written to me 15 years ago. That was very special. Mm. 
And I also like that we were able to share Amy Liss's story. Yeah. Yeah. I have so many people comment on that as well. And I loved your email to Robin. I'm so glad you did that. That was a great mm. one. All right, Lynn, that's a wrap on season two. Woo whoop. That's a rope. Lynn and I want to say a heartfelt thank you to our dopest of Dope Village for listening and supporting us. We hope you have a fabulous holiday. We do this podcast for you and appreciate all the kind words, comments, and questions you send our way. We'll keep you posted via social media on season three and on when that will be. But in the meantime, don't be a stranger. Keep in touch. Say hi. Tell us about your hopes, dreams, and aspirations for 2020. Mine is to get... RBG on the podcast. <laughs> Lynn, who do you want on the podcast in season three? I'm putting it out there. Sarah Blakely. Mm-hmm. I knew that one was coming. And something <laughs> that is a huge help in keeping this laughter permitted party rolling is if you tell people about us. Share an episode you like. Tell a neighbor, your local barista. Make an announcement in your next apartment meeting. Every listener and download really does count And being able to continue to deliver interviews with these amazing trailblazing women. And last but not least, thank you to the uber-talented Kate Diaz for our theme music. She's a Julie Fowdy Sports Leadership Academy alum. Do yourself a favor and check her music out. And as a final... Season two special gift to our listeners. I present my mother-in-law, Ruthie Bibbs. Well, hello, everyone. How are you? <laughs> e, give, him, give him your bestie, Ruthie. E. <laughs> Stop it. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm good. I wish I were there to give you a big hug. Well, why did you not come over with Julie? <laughs> That's what I said. Well, she told me she would pay for your ticket, but you were very reluctant to come over. I have a different side of the story, Ruthie. Well, you know who to believe. <laughs> How are you? I miss you. I'm good. I'm really good. It's great having the family over. The weather's not too good. It's pretty wet and cold, but... The Fowdies are hard. They can get used to it. You and I both know Julie is the biggest wimp when it comes to cold weather. I know. I agree entirely. I agree. <laughs> well, Ruthie, we were wondering if you could help us close out season two. Julie can explain what we do at the end of every episode. Okay, just hang fire. So we say, uh, and remember kids, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. Laughter permitted. <laughs> wow. Do you know do you know this? Ruthie was a singer, like a real singer, not like a singer like I sing, a real singer, not a shower singer. A bit like Beyonce. <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna say Adele. Or it could be Adele. Yes, definitely Adele. <laughs> okay, ready? Okay. We're going to close it out. Laughter permitted. Okay. Laughter oh, Wait, not yet. Not oh, yet. Right? <laughs> and as always, kids, remember, sing it with us. Laughter permitted. You don't want the smoke, Fowdy. <laughs> <laughs>